Mark chapter 4. And we'll read from verse number 13 all the way to verse number 34. Mark 4, beginning at verse 13, it says this. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones who are beside the road where this word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns, and these are the ones in who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things to enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket or is it, or under a bed. Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone is ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you beside. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples." Let's pray again. Father in heaven, this morning we ask you that you would teach us and instruct us. And Father, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would work in every heart. Father, minister to the needs. Teach us and show us again the Lord Jesus. And we ask this simply in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is that Jesus is up by the sea at the beginning of the chapter, and he's teaching the crowds about the way of God, about the kingdom of heaven, and so on. And he tells them a great parable about the seed and the sower and the soils. And the disciples come to him a little later and they say, uh, we don't understand what's going on. We don't understand the parable. Teach us what the parable is all about. And he takes them by himself and he teaches them and explains to them what the parable of the seed and the sower and the soils is all about. And then he goes a little further on and he explains to them in verses 21 to 25 a little more about shining the light of the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God to all of those around. And then if you notice in the text there, he uses the phrase, or Mark uses the phrase, and he was saying to them, and he used it a number of times, you look in the Bible there, Verse number 9, and he was saying, verse 11, he was saying to them, and he's speaking to the disciples and the followers, and then verse 13, he says, and he said to them, 
And then verse 21, and he was saying to them, and verse 24, and he was saying to them. Then in verse 26, he drops the to them. And everybody would pretty much agree that what he's doing now is Mark has actually shifted the scene again. And now Jesus is speaking to all the crowds, all the people are in front of him. And he is speaking to them in parables about the kingdom. And then in verse 30, it says, and he said, and so on. And then in verse 35, and he said to them, talking about the disciples again. So this passage right in front of us, what we want to focus on is verses 26 to 29, he is speaking to the crowds as a whole, all the people standing there listening to him. Now, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that Jesus is walking along one day and he's maybe on the roadside or maybe he's walking beside the beach or maybe he's walking somewhere where there's lots of people and all of a sudden he stops and he says, and he begins to teach them, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like. And he goes on to explain what it's like, gives a parable. Now, Certain phrases and certain things, statements are made, often bring to memory certain ideas or certain concepts that we all know. Now, standing in front of Jesus, I want you to imagine that there are zealots and there are rabbis, there are Pharisees, there are farmers, there are all kinds of people who maybe have known he's going to preach, maybe they're just passing on the road, and they hear him begin to speak. And when he uses that great phrase, the kingdom of God is like, they all have some idea of what he is going to talk about. And think about what the, maybe the zealots were thinking of. And the zealots were a particular group of people in Israel at the time. And they had started with a man named Judas the Galilean back when Jesus was about maybe 10 or 12 years of age. And he had revolted against Rome. And he had been crushed quickly by the Romans. And the zealots' idea was to set Jerusalem, set Israel, set the people free so they could have a very pure law, a pure people, a pure temple, so they could serve the Lord wholeheartedly and properly without the interference of the Romans. And their idea of a kingdom of God would have been a kingdom that was established by military might and force and power, and the Messiah would have reigned on his throne over a political military kingdom. But the rabbis, the Pharisees, they had a different idea of what the kingdom of God would be like. For them, kingdom of God was literally a spiritual reality. And the way they saw it was when they got to the point that they were uh, perfectly and completely keeping the law of God, that then they would enter into a spiritual reality where they were in the kingdom of God because they were perfectly obeying the law of God. And they related to their obedience, legalistic Phariseeism and so on. So all the Jewish ideas... When you think about them and their idea of who king was and who the kingdom was all about, their ideas would have all gone back to a little boy named David. And David was that great character in the Bible history. He was the greatest of all the kings of Israel. They called Jesus the son of David. They didn't call him the son of Hezekiah, which he was, or the son of maybe Ahaz or Uzziah, one of the other great kings of Israel. They call him the son of David. And David is the greatest of kings. And their idea maybe have gone back to thinking about David as that little boy with five stones, a sling and a staff, and the power of God with him going out and defeating the enemies of Israel. They would have the idea about David, the perfect, uh, if we can use the phrase, he was the perfect Renaissance king man. He was the poet and the musician who was also a great warrior. This young man handling the great sword of Goliath to cut off Goliath's head. This young man sitting on the hillsides of Bethlehem and Judea, writing and singing poetry and songs 
to the sheep and writing songs for the people of Israel to sing and worship to God. He was the great king. And they would have all have thought about David when they considered something of the king and the kingdom. And what do we think about when we think about kings and kingdoms? I was thinking about the young girls and thinking, what would they think about? Maybe they think of uh, young ladies in long silk dresses and the big thing on the head with the, the veils coming down. And maybe they thought about prince and princesses and, and knights in shining armor and handsome princes. And, and before I know it, I'll go off into Sleeping Beauty, so I'll stop there. But that's what maybe some girls have the idea about a kingdom when you think about that word. Maybe young guys You know, we like swords and armor and jousting and horses and the the banners and the shields and all that kind of stuff and the battles out there and guys on their armor doing their thing. And maybe we like the the idea of a great big feasting hall and everybody's around, there's a big pig on the spit and there's everybody's gathered around in the kingdom enjoying a great feast with the king. We have different ideas about what the kingdom is going to be and what it's going to be like. And when Jesus stands up there and says, the kingdom of heaven... Kingdom of God, it's the same phrase, same idea. And he starts to explain what it's like with a parable. They all would have gone, yeah, the kingdom of God. I've got some idea. And then he introduces a parable that's completely different than anything they had thought about of what the kingdom of God would be like. Most importantly of all, what did the kingdom mean to Jesus Christ? And you get some idea from the parables he tells there. If we go back to the ticket Bibles, flip over to Matthew 13 for a second. There's a series of parables there. There's only a few parables in Mark, but there's a few in Matthew that tell us how Jesus explains or what he likens the kingdom of God to. In Matthew chapter 13, we'll look at just a couple of them. In verse number 33, starting there, he says, He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And the people, the Pharisees and the rabbis and the zealots are going, Leaven? Like yeast, like, you know, baker's stuff. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a totally different idea of what they had in mind. And Jesus is getting the point across that the kingdom of heaven is like an unseen power of God drastically changing the subjects and content of the kingdom. In verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. And verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. I've heard so many guys get up and say, what that's talking about is Jesus who paid the ultimate price to get the great treasure, which is us. And I just go, no, 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 no. thousand times no. That's not what it means at all. The great treasure is the kingdom, and it's going to cost us everything to have that great treasure and the great pearl of great value. It's the inestimably high value of the person of Christ as the king reigning over his kingdom. We want to be a part of that kingdom? It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you all of your time and all of your effort. It's going to cost you giving up everything of yourself in order that you might have and be a part of that kingdom. Jesus describes the kingdom like leaven, like treasure, like a merchant seeking out a fine pearl. He also describes it back in Mark chapter 4 like seed that grows, like the farmer does not know how. The comparison of the kingdom of God to seeds and sowers and farmers, it would have been very different. They would not at all have been what they were expecting. And you think, well, that's easy to understand all those things, and we can kind of put them in context and understand that's good, that's fine. But you put yourself in their shoes for a moment. 
They're standing there, and all around them are Roman soldiers with weapons, and they're seeing outside in the hillsides and the roads around Judea and Galilee crosses put up as Romans deal with zealots and Romans deal with robbers and thieves. And there was a very heavy boot of Rome crushing down on the people of Israel, and the idea being set free from that pervaded all of their thinking. So when he stands up and says, this is the one they think is the Messiah, and says, the kingdom of God is like seed. Little tiny seeds that you throw in the ground and grow. It's so common, it's so usual, it's so everyday for them. It must have been just a radical change, a real jarring to their mind. What do you mean the kingdom of God's like seed and leaven and, and treasure in a field? It should be about a great conquest and a reestablishment of David's throne on the people of Israel, a kicking out of the Romans, a dealing once and for all with all of Israel's enemies. But Jesus says and says, no, it's... A seed that's being planted. Well, what is, how do we understand what the kingdom of God really is? What does it mean when we see that phrase in Scripture? And the best way to understand it is this. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Christ, the king over his people, the subjects of the kingdom. All right? That's us. People who believe in Christ, he is the king. The Bible makes it very clear. In John chapter 1, verse 49, Jesus is looking at Nathanael. Nathaniel comes walking across to meet him with Philip, and he's bringing him to see Jesus. And Jesus says, here's an Israelite in him, there is no guile. And he says, before you, before you saw me, I saw you, and you were under the fig tree. That's a picture of Nathaniel who was in prayer and worship and fasting under the fig tree, waiting to meet the Messiah. And Nathaniel has no idea who this is. All of a sudden, he's telling him about himself. And Nathaniel realizes that moment, and he says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus does not refute and does not deny his words because he knows he's the King. At the end of Jesus' life, he's standing before Pilate and the the people trying to get rid of him, the high priests and the, uh, the Jews and the Pharisees and so on. They're all saying, he made himself out to be a king. And you can see Pilate going, oh, wait a minute, this is a bigger problem than I thought. And he looks around at Jesus and says, are you a king? So you are a king in that sense. And Jesus says, it is as you say. He agrees with him, but he makes a very big point that his kingdom is not of this world. It's a much bigger, much greater kingdom. And the fact that Pilate even had power is because he had it because God gave it to him. God put him in that place. Jesus is the king over his kingdom. The kingdom also has subjects, those of us. Those of us who have come to faith and repentance, Jesus purchased our salvation, like we were talking about a minute ago, by dying on a cross. And he called us to faith and repentance and to follow him through the preaching of the gospel. Our entrance into the kingdom of God is our voluntary acceptance and submission to the rule and reign of God in Christ over us. It's his rule, his reign over us as king of, king, king of kings and lord of lords in our own lives. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We belong to Christ, and He is our Lord. He's our master. And the question becomes for us, do we accept that, and do we live as if we are part of the kingdom in submission to the King who rules over our hearts? So by voluntary acceptance and voluntary submission to Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, we are included in the kingdom of God. Now, some of you are probably wondering right away, How does the kingdom of God and the church, how do they kind of work together? Because there seems to be two different things here, and they they seem sort of almost in conflict and and so on. How does it work? 
Very simple and very quickly, I don't want to take too much time on it. The kingdom of God is like a nation that goes to war, right? And uh, like, say, Australia in World War I. And all the churches are like the individual battalions and units and regiments that go out to fight in the war. And they're there and they gather together like we do on Sunday morning for refreshment and encouragement to build up, to re-equip. And we go out through the week to fight the battle in that sense. And every weekend we come back and we get kind of like the soldiers coming in from the front lines. They come together, they get some food, they get some feeding, they get some encouragement, they get some instruction, they get built up, and they go back into the battle on Monday morning. It's just like an army in the field fighting a war. Well, one day the war is going to be over. Peace is going to be declared. Our king will come down and rule, and sorry, deal with his enemies once and for all. And what will happen is the army will no longer be needed. In that sense, the analogy, and the churches will give way to the kingdom. The churches will sort of cease, and the kingdom of God will be in full effect. So the kingdom of the churches kind of work together. The churches are like little army units as part of a much bigger kingdom. If you want to know more, come and find me and grill me afterwards. If you don't agree with me, that's okay too, and we'll talk it through. But that's the best way to understand how the churches and the kingdom of God kind of work together. Now, we're only five words into our text, so we want to get back to that. Meanwhile, back in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29, what about the parable? How does this parable tell us about the kingdom of God? In for, there's a whole bunch of elements of a parable. By the way, as you come across parables and you're reading them, one thing to keep in mind is parables make one point primarily. Too many of us, myself included, have taken every element of a parable and preached a full series of sermons on every element. It doesn't work that way. Parables deal with one aspect of something simply and clearly. Don't read too much into every different part and piece of a parable because that's not what they're for. They typically have one main point, and this one is no exception. But I want to show you what the elements of the parable are and how they kind of relate. Um, If you look at the parable before about the seed and the soil and the and the sower, and so on, this parable is kind of an extension, and expansion. He's sort of finishing off the idea and the thought with the people of God again. So there's a number of elements. Number one, you've got a man scattering seed on the ground. Well, we know from the earlier section of the text that that man scattering seed is a faithful disciple of God who is sowing the word of God. The seed simply is the word of God that is sown in the hearts and lives of people, both believers and unbelievers. So the seed's the word of God. The soil on the ground. We looked at this a few weeks ago about the soil being the heart of the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God. It's what the seed of the word is sown into, the life and heart of the believer or the unbeliever. Verse 28 also talks about the crop that grows, and he doesn't know how. Look at verse 28. He says this. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grade in the head. But when the, sorry, missed it. Verse 27, read that. Verse 27, he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. And that, that is the main point of the parable. What Jesus is saying, listen, there is a central point here, and the, the seed grows by in some inexplainable way. The, so, the farmer goes out with a seed, he scatters it out in the field, and the idea of the parable is he goes home, he goes to bed, he sleeps, he gets up at night, he goes back out, he scatters more seed. But he doesn't look back at the what's been done before. He just keeps moving through his day and his week and his life, sowing the seed on the ground. And somehow, by itself, is what Jesus says, that seed begins to grow. 
Now, who here has ever planted seed to grow something? Who's ever here planted and had it die on you? Yeah, me. Who, who has the gift of killing things that are green? Me. <laughs> right? And we're all good at that. And we kind of wonder, how is it that the seed grows? And the reality is, God does it. That little seed, that little piece of organic material, little shell, little inner bit, the parts inside of it, does that happen by itself? You put it in the ground and just by itself grows? No. The answer is every time that seed springs forth and the little shoot starts to work its way up and come out of the ground, that's a work of God. And what Jesus is making the point here is it's the omnipotent power of God that causes the seed to grow. It's the omnipotent power of God that causes and produces the kingdom of God. Okay, that's the main point of his parable. So if he's listening to the the Pharisees, he would say, listen, Pharisees, the kingdom of God cannot be produced through the keeping of the law. You just can't do it. It's impossible. To the zealot, listen, the kingdom of God cannot be produced through military force or might or striving or human effort or struggle. Listen, philosopher, listen, thinker. The kingdom of God cannot be produced by human logic or reasoning or understanding. What does the whole first chapter of 1 Corinthians deal with? The wisdom and logic of man, which is foolishness to God, and God's ways, which are foolishness to man. Because it's the wisdom of God that brings about the change in a man's heart where he goes from an unbeliever to a believer. It's the power of God that does those things. That's his point. The guy goes out and sows a seed and it comes up, quote, by itself. It's the power of God working that causes that kingdom, if you like, to grow. Again, remember what the kingdom of God is. The best way to understand it, as far as we're concerned, is the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. We are Christians. We are under his lordship. Do not ever buy into the idea that you can be saved one day and you can come and submit to Christ as Lord some other time in the future. That is radically untrue and unbiblical. We come to Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. If you like, He is our King. And we come in submission to Him. It's the power of God working in us, taking the seed of the Word of God and causing us to grow causing us to be more Christ-like, to change from what we once were to what we are now becoming, okay? So the kingdom of God can only be produced or established through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, at work in us. The work of God, through the Spirit of God, causes us to die, like a little seed. They say it goes in the ground, and then it dies, and then it puts a little thing out and comes up. I remember when I was in grade, I don't know, six or seven, Long, 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 long time ago. And they had that little illustration of the blackboard, and the sea goes in the ground. They show the little thing going down, and then it turns around and comes up and has to fight its way up to the surface. And they say, well, the sea dies, and then it puts forward this thing. And it's like, why can't, how can you not see the work of God in that? It can only be by the work of God, only be by the power of God that happens. And it's exactly the same in the believer's life. The Word of God is planted into our hearts, It causes us to die to self and to come, in a sense, to new life in Christ and to bear the fruit, bear the grain in this illustration here of life in Christ. So the unseen power of God is necessary throughout the entire life of the plant. Notice something else in the parable. He says, first the blade, the grass, the first growth comes up, then the head, then the mature grain. And when the crop permits, then the growth is finished, then the harvest comes. And all of that growth, 
from the time that seed goes into the ground all the way into when the harvest is finished, it's all accomplished by the power of God at work in the life of the believer. It cannot be accomplished any other way. The parable is emphasizing the power of God in the life of the kingdom subject, the believer, to change them and grow them. But the parable isn't talking about our responsibility as willing co-workers with God to do our part. We were talking yesterday morning, the guys, a couple of us were at the the Bible study yesterday morning, talking about how righteousness happens and how there is God's part in the work and there is our part in the work. And what Jesus is emphasizing here is God's part working in us to change us and make us like Christ. Last thing before we close. How then should we respond to the parable that's in front of us? I want to give you four things that we need to do. Even though the power of God is at work, there are four things for us to do as believers. Number one, we faithfully plant the word of God into the soil of the human life. That is our responsibility. We were looking on uh, Tuesday night and 1 Peter chapter 2 and how the new believer, like a little baby over there, he craves and longs for the pure spiritual milk that it might grow. So part of our responsibility is we are to be sowing the seed into each other's lives and into our own lives. That's my responsibility. Wherever we go, Whatever we're doing, we're to be sowing and planting the seed of the word of God in each other's lives, in unbelievers' lives, and other believers' lives. So the word of God is put in there. How is it? We were looking at this yesterday morning too. How is it possible for there to be spiritual life if we do not proclaim the word of God to each other? That's how it happens. So we plant the word of God. Listen, be encouraged. Wherever you are, Whatever you're doing, if you have the opportunity to share the word of God with somebody, be encouraged. That's faithfulness to God, and God will reward that faithfulness, and God will honor it. You feel like you get up there and you go to, to share the gospel with somebody, and it comes out saying like, and you just kind of you stumble through it, and you wonder. The guy probably thinks it, Christians are all you know, insane or something, and they start talking like that, and you wonder, how in the world can God use that? Listen, if we are faithful to share the word of God wherever we go, to put the word of God into people's hands and into their lives so they can hear the word of God, God will honor that. To young moms, I said it a few weeks ago, I'll say it again, you're at home with your kids, sharing the word of God with them, teaching them, encourage them, be encouraged. God is going to use that faithfulness to change your kids' lives. I can still remember in Barrick, 1970, oh, would have been three or four. My dad explained the gospel. I don't remember very much of it, but I remember one thing I'll never forget. He put his hand, he said, Jesus had nails through his hand. He put his finger in the middle of his palm. And I can picture that as clear as a bell. And that was what, nearly 40 years ago, 43 years ago, something like that. That stuck. Young parent, young mom, young dad, be encouraged. Put the word of God into your kids' lives. Plant it in there. Be faithful with that. To us who are going out, I know Karen loves to go out and share the gospel with everybody she meets at work and takes every opportunity she can to share it. Be encouraged. You might see, I don't see any fruit. I don't see people coming to know the Lord. I don't see people responding. I just see myself sharing the gospel over and over again. And it seems to get turned down flat again and again and again. Listen, God is faithful to you. He will reward and he will honor the work that you do in putting the gospel and the word of God into people's lives. You get alongside some other person. You share the Bible with them in a Bible study. 
You work alongside. Whatever you're doing to share the word of God, be encouraged, be faithful. This guy, the sense of the, the wording here is he got up day after day after day and just kept spreading the seed, kept spreading the seed. And he knew that one day he would look back across the fields and he would see the green mist across the fields. All his little shoots were coming up and beginning to bring forth life and grow. Second thing is this, steadfastly abide on the vine. Notice that the power of God is required through the entire course of the life of that plant. It doesn't get above the surface and the plant go, okay, I'm good. Cut itself off at the ground level and just go off by itself and keep growing. In fact, you take a stick on the ground that's fallen off a tree... Um, we all love gum trees because they tend to drop their, their sticks and branches on the ground. You take that branch and put it up against a tree and try and put it back in there, it won't grow. It separates itself from the life-giving sap of that tree. It can no longer grow. And this plant requires the power of God all through its life to grow up to full maturity. And guess what? We as believers in Jesus Christ, we need the power of God to live the life for God all through from start to finish. It starts with a little seed going in the ground and it finishes when the seed comes up the full height and gives off its grain, its corn or whatever. But it requires that power. And too many of us start out by the power of the Spirit of God that makes us alive. And we turn around and immediately start striving in our flesh to finish the work on our own. And Paul says in Galatians, are you so foolish? Are you crazy? You've started in the power of the Spirit. Are you intending to finish by the effort of the flesh, the effort of work? No, we've got to stay in constant connection. We've got to stay in good fellowship, constant fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides on the vine. Listen, look from the parable and say, listen, if I don't stay attached to the seed, I don't stay attached to the word as well as the spirit of God, I cannot grow in my spiritual life. Third thing is this. Constantly submit ourselves to the reign of Christ in our lives. We have to do that again and again and again. We are so prone to wander, aren't we? To turn around and walk away. We stay in full submission to the reign of Christ. That's how we are a part of the kingdom. I don't get the idea that if you step away from Christ, you're out of the kingdom. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is we have to be constantly disciplining ourselves to bring ourselves back and stay under the lordship of Christ, to stay submitted to his will, to constantly be obeying the word of God that we're planting within our hearts, to constantly be repenting of sin, putting away the idols and returning with all of our hearts to worship the living God, to throw off the sins and habits that beset us and run with endurance the race. Listen, Christian. Be encouraged. It's only when we submit ourselves to his will that we know true freedom. And we think that we can have freedom because we can go and do whatever we want. That Christian freedom means I can go and do whatever I want, wherever I want, because it's all covered by the blood of Christ. That is not true. Christian freedom is the freedom to be a slave to righteousness, to live my life in obedience to God. So what Jesus is doing as he's telling the parable is he's saying, listen, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God in my person is like this. I see throw in the soil. It grows up by itself, meaning it grows up by the power of God working to bring forth fruit from that seed that's planted. And if we step away, 
we try to cut ourselves off, do it on our own, in our own strength, we miss the point and we cannot do it. So what are we going to do? We're going to carry on. Keep planting the word. We're going to carry on being in the vine, connected to the vine, being a part, not being a part, being under the power of the word of God and living by the power of the spirit of God. We're going to stay in constant submission to the lordship of Christ putting ourselves under his will in obedience to his will and obedience to his word. The last thing I want to come back to some other time is this. We never lose sight that the harvest is coming. The last verse he says there is, but when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Listen, there is a harvest coming. There's a day coming. There's pictures all through the New Testament about the end of days. And a lot of times it uses the idea of a harvest when Jesus goes out and he cuts down all the wheat and all the tares get cut down with it and he separates the wheat in one pile and the tares and the chaff and the useless bits in the other pile. And the wheat is gathered into his barn and there there is fellowshipping and joy and happiness and all the useless bits, all the tear, the chaff, the Bits of husks and kernels that can't be used are all gathered up, bundled up, and thrown into the fire to be burned. There is a harvest coming. Jesus is going to be with us. He's going to finish the race and the work that he began in us all the way to the very end. Stay faithful in planting the word in your own heart. Stay, stay in connection with the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Stay abiding in the vine. And be constantly putting ourselves under the Lordship of Christ. Does that make sense? All right. Let's pray and then the guys will come and lead us a couple more songs. Let's stand, would you? And we'll pray together. Loving Father, we give you thanks again for your goodness to us. Father, we give you thanks for the grain, the, the seed that tells us about the Word of God. And Father, we give you thanks that you have given us your Word. And Father, we thank you for the craving of a little baby for milk that reminds us to crave and long and hunger for your word, to plant the word of God deep in our hearts. Father, we give you thanks that it is by your power, the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that brings life and, Father, brings us to yourself. Father, we thank you that it is you working in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. And, Father, we give you thanks also that you are going to continue and finish the work that you began in us. Father, help us to be faithful to plant the word in our own lives, to plant the word in each other's lives, and, Father, to plant the word in the lives of those who don't know you. Father, we plead with you that you would take and bring forth fruit from our own lives. Father, we ask you for help. We give you thanks, O God, for your faithfulness, and we ask you, Father, for your blessing on our time in the church, giving thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.